Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 6, that passage that we just saw in the video we'll be looking at in a few moments. While you're turning there, I want you to think along the lines of the stuff in life that you like to collect. Um, I've, I've enjoyed this little practice of mine through the years to go to people's homes as they allow us to do that. And uh, as I go there, I see things that people like to collect and I've seen all kinds of stuff. I went to the home of one guy who actually stayed with him for a few days when I was a youth minister, and he liked to collect uh, the heads of exotic animals. And he had a particular a television room that he had, and he had all kinds of stuff on there. No preachers as far as I could tell, which was a good thing. But uh, I've seen people who collect uh, little spoons... I hadn't seen this in a long time, but little spoons, I guess every time somebody go to a particular state of the union, they'd stop at one of those tourist dumps, traps, uh, excuse me, uh, stores and buy a little spoon saying that they'd been to whatever state it was. Uh, Collections is an interesting thing about who we are as people. For a while, as a youth minister, I collected newspapers, which was dumb, I figured out before it was all said and done. But the reason I collected newspapers is because I had a bunch of kids in my youth group who were involved in uh, a a mission activity during the summertime. And it wasn't I Go Global, it was before that. But uh, this particular organization would send kids all over the world. And so because they were out of my youth group, I would say to them, hey, bring me back something. And knowing that, first of all, they had limited money and secondly, limited time, I said, why don't you just bring me a newspaper from the place where you're going? So I could give them a dollar and that would cover the cost of that. And I had newspapers from Greece and from Indonesia and from China, uh, all over the world, uh, which was really cool for about two years. After two years, what I found was I had this stuff that rats love to get into. Uh, and it was taking up valuable space. And so those things that had been valuable to me suddenly became worth nothing to me. And so I tossed them. What do you collect? Now, I, we have some collections of stuff at our house. I still don't know the meaning of this. But I play along anyway. My wife collects shoes. Now, some of you husbands just got an elbow. I saw that coming at you. This is not the kind of shoes you're thinking about. Okay, These are those little bitty shoes. At least the kind that hang out in the closet have some practical value. These little bitty ones, they're, they're wonderful. I'm so happy to have them at the house, actually. <laughs> Teresa started years ago collecting these little things. And so uh, one of the things that somebody, a mentor of mine, taught me early on that when I buy something for my wife, by the way, guys, this is worth writing down. When I buy something for my wife, it's important that I buy something that means something to her, not necessarily to me. Here's how that plays out. If I really want to get her something to show her how much I love her, I'll buy her a new set of golf clubs. The problem with that is she's going to use those on me because she didn't play golf. So what I can do instead of that is buy something that means something to her. And so I buy her one of these little shoes that from where I sit have no practical value at all. Except they look great sitting out in places in the house, I'm told. 
But it means something to her. At least it did before this sermon started. (laughs) Collections. What do you collect? You know, through the years, I've figured out that all of us tend to collect something. Many people that I know collect money. Now, we put, we dress it up and we call it savings. Or if you get a lot of it, then you call it investing. What do you collect? I want us to think about that as we come to this passage today. Matthew chapter 6. I want us to talk today about valuables and value and value systems as it relates to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking to us about what a kingdom Christian looks like and how they operate. Matthew chapter 6, we begin reading today in verse 19. And Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I'm going to tell you before we get done with all of this, that that last word money in this translation is an unfortunate translation. And I'll come to that in just a few moments, so hang on until we get there, if you will. I want us to look first at what Jesus is not saying with this. He is not saying that it is wrong for us to stack up possessions. He is not saying that you should not save, whether it's money or anything else. That is not at all what he's driving at. He's not saying that wealth is evil or possessions are evil. Neither is he saying that the holiest of all Christians take a vow of poverty, they give all of their stuff to somebody else, and they live with nothing. He's not saying any of that. Now, those are some things that Christians through the years have tried to force onto this text. But that's not what Jesus is driving at. As we come to this passage, we're going to find that what he is saying, first of all and foremost, is this. You cannot be a kingdom disciple of Jesus Christ with a divided loyalty or a divided value system in your life. Now, that ought to cause us to stop for a second. So let me slow it down a bit and say it again. What Jesus is saying to us in this group of verses is that we cannot be the kind of disciple he calls us to be if we have a divided loyalty. Let me see if I can establish that for us as we go forward here. Now, along with that, and I'm going to put these side by side, But one of the things that he seems to be driving at here is that wealth or the stuff of our lives, that's the term I'll use quite a bit this morning, the stuff of our lives, the things that we put value in, 
Those things make for great competitors with him. So as we work into it, let's be sure that this morning we listen for ourselves, okay? This is not the kind of uh, sermon that you need to be listening going, boy, I sure wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear that. No, this is for all of us. Because what Jesus is saying to us here drives right to the heart of how we do this thing called Christianity. So let's look at a couple of things. First of all, the structural examination of this shows us that uh, there are two basic statements that provide the driving principle here. Uh, verses 29, or excuse me, 19 through 21, coupled with verse 24, drive this point home for us. The real issue is not wealth, but it is unqualified and absolute discipleship. I want to let that sink in. You can see it on the screen. Let it sink into our hearing. The reason I want us to do that at this point is because I'm trying on the very front end of the whole thing to give you the end product of what we're talking about so that you see it throughout the process of these verses. Many people have taken this passage of Scripture and the one that follows it and they've tried to force it into a little mold that says Jesus is talking about how you spend your money and that is not necessarily the case. Now, it's not that he's ignoring money in this. As a matter of fact, it provides a great opportunity for him to drive this point home. But the real issue here is not wealth. It is unqualified, absolute discipleship. So how are you doing with that? What are the things in your life that compete with Jesus Christ to be Lord in your life? Verses 19 and 21. Verse 24, drive that point for us. Now, as a corollary, a twin truth, one that grows out of that when we find in verses 22 and 23 that there is the need for us to have perspective as it comes to the things of life. Let's break that down just a tad, all right? The charge, verses 19 through 21. I've already read it. I'm not going to read it again. Here, let me put it in my terminology for you. This is the Rotrammel paraphrase of the day. Be careful of the depository that you use. I said depository. Be careful of the depository that you use in life. In other words, where are you putting the stuff of life for you? Here's an example of what I'm talking about. George W. Truitt, who was one of the great Baptist preachers of yesteryear, uh, had a way of just cutting straight to the point with people. And so he went to visit a guy. Now, uh, Truett was pretty well known in the central and north central part of Texas. And uh, there were some people there who were moneyed kind of people. And uh, that didn't intimidate him at all. And he went to this particular guy's house, and he was known as a guy who had a lot of stuff. A lot of money, a lot of land, a lot of business ventures and all that. He was a pretty, pretty successful guy. As a matter of fact, when he got there, the guy told Truett, uh, you know, 25 years ago, I had nothing. I mean, nothing. And through hard work and nose-to-the-grindstone stuff and working my plan and making sure that I was pulling forward and everything, I took all of the, all the nothing that I had, and now everything you see in any direction is mine. From this point as you stand on my property, any direction you look, it's mine. I've bought it. I've developed it. It's mine. I'm a success in life. 
Druitt said, really? Well, that's pretty impressive. And so he faced one direction, and out there he could see this wide-open prairie kind of thing and cattle as far as the eye could see. And Truett said, all of that stuff, that direction is yours? And he said, that's right. Turned around 180 degrees, looked behind him. It was some uh, vacant land, and then all of a sudden it was a forest back there. And he said, all of that stuff's yours? He said, that's right. All of that's mine. I own all of the rights to all of that. Faced the other direction. Big lake out there. He said, you own that too? Yes, sir. And finally, Truett looked at him and he said, how about everything in that direction? And he pointed up. How is it for you in that direction? He said that the guy stopped and he ducked his head and he said, you know, I hadn't really thought about that direction much. What about the stuff of your life? When we come to this particular passage, verses 19 through 20, Jesus drives home the point, where are you putting your stuff? Again, I want to emphasize, he's not saying don't store it, but he is saying store it wisely. Do the things that you do and have the stuff that you do and do it for the long haul, not for the short haul. Here's how Teresa and I figured some of that stuff out in our marriage, okay? If I had to prove to you today that Teresa and I are actually married... Uh, I would have a struggle with that. Your pastor search committee never asked me that question if we were legally married or not. So now's a good time after 14 months for me to deal with it probably. Okay, we are legally married. But if you asked me to prove it, I'd have a hard time proving it. You know why? Because, well, early in our marriage, uh, we moved a lot. You know, I was, uh, first the first couple of years we moved, you know, apartments to that, you know, we were just kind of all over the place in a short period of time. And then I went off to school, so we had to move for that. And then, you know, one church and then another church. And so, you know, it's the early life of a pastor, a lot of moving around. And in that moving around, uh, we had boxes. Boxes upon boxes. And uh, finally, when we moved down here, we figured some things out. If we had a box, and we had a lot of these, that had stuff in it that hadn't been opened in 20 years, we probably didn't need that box. So we got rid of them. Now, I know that that's sacrilege in some churches. You never throw away anything. Well, some things need to be thrown away. So we threw away some boxes. But some we didn't get a chance to throw away because we had placed them at one point in our lives out in a storage shed in our backyard down in deep south Texas. That's one of those metal storage sheds. No floor in it, so there were just some old wooden pallets in the floor, which gave the termites a great opportunity to come up into the boxes and eat everything that was in the boxes, including our marriage license. I told her that meant legally we weren't married anymore. No, I didn't either. (laughs) You know that because I'm still walking. Are you keeping... The stuff of your life in the best possible place. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. And what he's doing is he's taking a truth from first century Jewish life. They didn't have banks. Okay? So they they couldn't go down to the nearest credit union and say, hey, I just got paid this and I want to put X number of dollars in savings. They couldn't do that. So what they had to do, and by the way, one of the things that they did is they converted whatever money they had into clothing. So one of the ways people showed that they were wealthy is they had multiple sets of clothing. 
So go home today and look in your closet and see just how wealthy you really are. Because for the average Jew, one or maybe two changes of clothes would have been all they would have had. Unless they were wealthy and they had a lot. That's where the moth part of this comes in that Jesus is talking about. And the rust word that he uses literally means to be eaten. And so it also ties into that or possibly grain that they would store from time to time. If they happen to have money, they would take it, they would put it in a pot or a jar of some kind. Often they would take it out into the backyard, well not backyard, but out into a field somewhere and bury it. So Jesus is taking that practice. And he's saying to them, the stuff of this life that you have, where you're putting all of your emphasis day in and day out, is not safe in the long haul. At the very least, if it doesn't get stolen, it's going to deteriorate. And so what he does then is he says, so, which, you know, by doing that, he forces us to ask this question, okay, then what do I do with it? Before we get to the what do I do with it, we better really ask the question, what is the stuff, the treasure that he's talking about here? Verse 21 gives us this principle. Let's look at it one more time. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus moves us to this discussion about our value system. What is treasure to you? And in keeping with that, the the basic point that Jesus is saying for us here is that as we see these things, when we attach value to something in our lives, we will pursue that something. Malcolm Muggeridge. I love the quote mainly for the guy's name. Okay, Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, a number of years ago, made this quote. It is a psychologically determinable fact that one will gradually become like that unto which he continually looks. Doesn't that sound like something that some dude in school would say and never anybody say again? Let me break it down. Because what he says cuts straight to the heart of how we see stuff. It is a psychologically determinable fact. In other words, we can get empirical evidence that shows this is true. That a person gradually becomes like the thing that he continually focuses on. All right? You with me with that? Just let that hover out there. Some of you going, no, let's just leave that out there. Let it hover for a second. I want to come back to what Jesus said. You remember the two great commandments? Please say yes. I've been hitting you with this for 14 months now. Okay, The two great commandments. The first one is love God. Second, love people. That's just kind of boiled it down. Love God, love people. That's not just a great bumper sticker. It's not just a great part of a sign on a church somewhere. That is the essence that Jesus said the most important two commandments in life. I say after the cross... And the whole saving thing that Jesus has done for us, when you get that part settled, what we just said, love God, love people, has to become first place in your life as far as what you focus on and what you do. So, let's come back to this example now. Muggeridge says we gradually become like that to which we continually look. So, if you set as the treasure of your life money, 
And your whole life now is targeted towards making and accumulating cash. What he's saying, and I'm going to not give him full credit because I think this is really what Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, there's your heart also. If money is what it's all about for you, then everything you do in your life when you have control over it is going to be geared towards money. Which impacts then the love people part of the two great commandments. If you love money, then people become one of several things for you. First of all, if you really love money and that's where your treasure is and you're putting your whole life towards the accumulation of cash, people then may be for you nothing more than a mechanism to get money. You understand what I mean by that? Some of us in this room are salesmen, right? Let's take that as an example. If your whole deal is to get money for yourself, you're going to go and use people in order to help you get money. Now, listen, that's not all bad in a salesman kind of a job. That's part of what your job is, is to help your company make money by getting somebody else's money. Well, that's a great job. If you can talk somebody else out of money, well, good for you. But the person who is so focused on money, people then just become, they're not... Created in God's image, that's not that big a deal. They're not there for ministry, that's not that big a deal. They're there to help me make money. But other people, maybe some of those people, if your whole deal is to make money, then people might not just be mechanisms for you, they might also be threats to you. After all, one of the things that I figured out a little bit late in the game, to be honest with you, but I figured out that if it's a goal for saving money, children in your household are a problem. Right? I have a son who's 22. I don't know. I don't know how old he doesn't live at home anymore. I don't have to know how old he is anymore. Well, that's not true. I have to know because now I'm paying for his wedding. If you want to save money, kids are a threat to you. Right? Now, I'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek about the wedding thing. We're helping him pay for it. We're glad to do that. Sort of. Some days. Okay? You with me? Stay with me. So if money is it for you, then the love people part gets watered down a little bit because now they're objects for you. They're they're the ones that they they help me get where I need to go. I I don't care about you. I just want your money to help me save money. And then they're threats to you because they just want to spend more. And ultimately, they become obstacles to you. And so, if we follow this through, the way I think Jesus is teaching it, that one great commandment, I'm just picking one, but that one great commandment to love people, which means to invest in them, to minister to them, to make them more in life than they could ever be by themselves, suddenly we diminish their humanity and they become 
tools or obstacles or threats. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And by the way, to take that whole five-minute illustration that I just gave you, to take it to its root, when you fail to love people the way you're called to, you have de facto failed to love God the way you're supposed to. And so Jesus says, consider the depository into which you put your stuff. This is not just about money. What he's teaching here involves how we look at our money and how we handle our money, but that's not the point of this. The point of this is about discipleship. Will I be the follower of Christ that he has called me to be? Look at this again in verse 24. I like the way this verse breaks out. The first statement, no one can serve two masters. This is slave language that he's using. Okay, No slave can have, well, that's not the way he says it. And we need to make sure we get it the way he says it. Because in first century life, a, a slave could actually have two different owners. The problem is, as Jesus highlights it here, is that a slave who has two owners has to choose which of the two he's going to obey because he can't obey both of them. And so in this case, Jesus says this principle applies to us. Wherever you set your heart, wherever your affections are, wherever your priority in life is, if it's not in heaven, if it's not Jesus Christ, you set up some false Jesus over here and put whatever label we want to on it, whatever collection we have, then we have this choice. And Jesus says, there is no choice. I am Lord. You know what that word means? It means Lord. Boss. But when we set up this competing value system, then we take Jesus and we move him down a peg or two. We get him where he's a little more manageable for us rather than being who he is. The last part of verse 4, that's the first one, no one can serve two masters. The last part, you cannot serve God and money. Here's the unfortunate part of that. The word actually is an Aramaic term that we don't really know. Even today, scholars don't really know exactly what it meant. But, uh, well, some of your translations have it a different word probably. If it's not money, what does it say in your Bible? Mammon. You know what that means? I just told you, we don't know what it means, Okay. Stuff. That seems to be the best picture of this word. So it involves money, but it's maybe material possessions is a good way to look at it. Jesus says on the front end of this, you can't serve two bosses. A slave can't serve two masters. At the end of it, he says you can't serve God and mammon. And in between those two, he gives some commentary. Either you hate one and love the other one, or love the second one and hate the first one. But the fact of the matter is you got a divided loyalty issue. Here's the basic point of verse 24. Jesus makes it explicit for us that we set ourselves up with these competing loyalties in our lives. You have to choose. It's a discipleship issue. 
Let me take it off of the money one for a second and just throw this one out just to get you thinking a little bit and give you something to talk about at lunch today. What if somebody says, my family is the greatest value of my life? Now, see, in our society, and I'm talking about our Christian society now, which is not the American society, but Americans who are Christians, our little society within the big society, we say family first. And we structure ourselves that way. Let me tell you something. Jesus would say to you, you cannot serve family and God that way. Now, that, that causes some of us going, oh, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Family's good. Money's bad. Okay, I'll give you that. Money's bad. Unless you have it, then you don't think it's all that bad. But this family thing, preacher, are you sure about that? Jesus says this is an issue about loyalty. Who's first in your life? Now, let me help you a little bit. If you let Jesus be Lord of your life, He's going to insist that you take care of your family. Okay? So it's not like you have to choose one or the other, except you do. If you choose correctly, Jesus says, I'll make sure you take care of the family because no disciple of mine is going to treat people poorly. Any people, much less family people. It's a discipleship thing. And Jesus then and Jesus now demands absolute surrender from us. So maybe we have to ask this question. What is it for me that gets in the way of discipleship? See, that's just another way for me to ask you, what do you collect? That's another way for me to ask you, what is the treasure of your life? When it comes to being obedient to Jesus Christ, what is it that gets in the way for you? Well, I tell you what, one of the places this just hammered me was when God called me to the ministry. Now, I was a preacher's son, grew up in a preacher's house. The last thing I wanted was for my kids to have to go through being preacher's kids. I didn't even have kids at the time, and I was worried about that. And it caused me to avoid following Christ the way he called me for a long time. And he patiently waited and let my refusal to let him be Lord bear fruit in my life. Let me tell you something. That's bad fruit. That's fruit that even when it's ripe, it's rotten. It's not good. But the moment that I chose, Lord, I can't keep doing life this way. I'm going to let you be God. You know what he said to me? I told you to go to school. Study to be a minister. Okay. That's how, just how I said it. Okay already, I'll go. But it caused me for years to step out of being a disciple and to just try to do church my way. I think churches are full of me at that point. Because God comes and he makes claims on your life. And we say, okay, I, I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I want the fire insurance that keeps me out of hell. I want the eternal life that he promises. But I don't want him to be boss. And he says, oh, well, that's the only way you get it. The picture for us is of a newlywed. I just told you my son's about to get married. If he doesn't ruin it before the middle of November, he's going to get married. Picture this. 
a guy and a girl get married. All the spin up, all the stuff, you know, they just focused on marriage, on the, on the wedding, not on the marriage, but on the wedding. And they get it all together and they keep working towards that and they get everything. Finally, it's a wedding day and they show up and flowers are everywhere and food's everywhere and people are everywhere. They go through the whole thing. The guy comes in and the girl comes down, you know, a lot of all that stuff. When the wedding is over, they go to the reception. First dance and all that kind of stuff and everything's great. The reception goes and it's pretty and everybody's talking about, oh, you're a beautiful bride and all that garbage. And so they come to the end of it. They come to the end of it and it's finally time for the bride and the groom to leave. And so they run out. People throw stuff out and that's part I like. I don't undo the rice bag. I just throw the bag. That's a lot more fun. If you put a washer in it, it really flies when you... They get in the car, and he takes off, and they're headed for their honeymoon. And they get just to the edge of town, and his wife now, who was his fiance hours earlier, looks over at him, and she says, uh, where are you going? He said, we're going on our honeymoon. She said, I'm not going on any honeymoon with you. He's dumbfounded. What do you mean? She said, I'm not, I'm not going. He said, well, what, do you just want to go to the house? She said, I want to go to my house. And he says, what do you mean by that? She said, I don't want to live with you. You take me back to mom and dad's house. I never intended to live with you. I just wanted to have a wedding. Let me tell you something. That is the story of thousands of Christians filling churches today. They come to Jesus Christ and they want... The connection, but they don't want the commitment. And they certainly don't want the commitment when it gets in the way of their collections. What is it for me that gets in the way of discipleship? What do you do with that? When you come right down to it and you know that Jesus is saying... I demand you. What do you do with that? You better decide. Because that's exactly what he says. Let's pray. And before I pray, heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to make sure that you understand what this is saying today. Jesus says, come, follow me. The exact same thing that he said to those disciples centuries ago, he says to us. And the exact same decision sits in our lap as it sat in theirs. For those disciples, let's take the ones who are out fishing with their dad and the hired servants. Come, follow me means you abandon your family, you abandon your career, you abandon your livelihood, and follow me. Well, that is not a popular appeal these days. And yet it is exactly the appeal that Jesus makes. Just finished reading a book called More Than a Fan or Not a Fan. A lot of fans of Jesus Christ 
He doesn't need fans. He needs followers. Some of you sitting there, and you just can't wait for this to be over because you know that this is God's word to you today. Let me tell you something. Give it up. Just surrender. The life that he offers to you is so much better than the life spent chasing stuff. But it takes surrender. If that's you today, when we stand here in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to just step out and come down. We'll uh, talk with you. We'll pray with you. Let you know that Jesus says, I have life for you better than you ever dreamed. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, why don't you become a follower today? Many of us decided years ago that we would be identified with Christ and take the life that he offers. Through the years, we've become enamored with stuff. We're making collections of stuff that won't stand the test in the end. Jesus says, come home. Whatever it is, today's the day. Make it right. Father, use this time that your name might be glorified. And lives changed. Amen.